So tonight we are going to be in Luke chapter 11. We're not going to get the whole chapter in tonight. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 28. And we're going to see two foundational, essential things to Christian living. And that's really this, prayer and power. And see, both of them are given to us by Jesus. Both of them are exemplified by Jesus. It's not by our power that we are saved. We're saved by believing and putting our faith in Jesus's power, that he is the greatest, that he is the strongest of all strong men, as we will see in his parable in this section. We need to remember that he's the one we're putting our trust in, but also everything that we do in Christian living, we need to make sure that it is steeped in prayer. We saw that last week, chapter 10 of Luke, it concluded with Mary and Martha. Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus while Martha, who had been sitting at the feet of Jesus, got up and started to get to work. She wanted to honor Jesus with her work. It was a good thing. But Jesus said, man, you're, you're frustrated because you left where you were supposed to be sitting at my feet. When we begin working in our own power, and our own strength, man, we need to remember, we need to come back to Jesus. We need to sit at his feet. We need to come to the Father in prayer. And we need to realize that, man, the Lord is so good to give us the privilege of prayer, to allow us to come and just sit at the feet of the Lord, to, to align our hearts with his. And so if we're trying to do anything in this life as Christians, apart from prayer, we're in trouble. It's a prayer that really starts our Christian relationship, right? That prayer that says, Lord Jesus, we belong to you. We trust in you. And then from there, we're to pray as we go out and seek the things that the Lord would have us to do, those good works that God has prepared for us to walk in. And so tonight, we're going to see those two things, prayer and power. So chapter 11 of Luke, beginning with verses 1 through 13, we're going to see prayer. But look at verse 1. It says, Now it came to pass, as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. So witnessing Jesus's prayer life, that extraordinarily beautiful prayer life of Jesus, one of his disciples comes and says, hey, will you teach us how to pray the way you pray? And see, considering the theme of depicting Jesus as being the perfect man, see, we commonly see Jesus's commitment to prayer in Luke's gospel more prominently featured than all the other gospels. So in other words, Luke says, hey, I'm making Jesus to be the perfect human, right? Like that's my focus. Jesus was the perfect human, but Luke's focusing on it. He says, man, I'm going to really pay attention to the fact that, man, Jesus prayed a lot. And to me, I think, man, if Jesus needed to pray, how much more should I be praying, right? And see that prayer life, uh, uh, it was, it's the fact that if you want to be greatly used by God, you have to be greatly connected to God. And see, that's what prayer does for us. It's crucial for both godly living and effective ministry. We see Jesus praying in many places throughout the gospel of Luke. We see Jesus praying at his baptism in Luke 3.21. We see Luke, I'm sorry, Jesus praying prior to choosing his disciples in Luke 6.12. We see him praying alone in chapter five and chapter nine. We see him praying in public in chapter nine. So Jesus was a man of prayer. And see, really what this showed was that, man, Jesus always wanted to be connected with the Father. And see, we're told that Jesus, right, he's added humanity to his deity. And so what that means is that he was 100% God, but he was now 100% man. And prayer was important because he was re relying upon the Father for continual guidance, direction, and wisdom. 
And see, Colossians 4.2 tells us, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. And so you can only imagine being a disciple of Jesus and seeing him pray and think, man, I want, I want that in my life. And see, so he goes to Jesus and says, hey, John teaches his disciples how to pray. I, I want you to teach us how to pray, Jesus. And see, Jesus here, it's awesome because Jesus is going to teach us what the proper heart and attitude and motive is in our prayer life, what it should look like, that kind of heart that we should possess. And the way he's going to teach us this is through a model prayer as seen in verses two through four. Look what it says in verses two through four. It says, so Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us day by day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So what Jesus does here is he provides this model prayer to, again, these are the things he's trying to convey to us. What is the appropriate heart, the appropriate spirit, and the appropriate perspective that should be apparent in our prayer life? And so Jesus begins by saying, when you pray, say dot, 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 right? But it's very important to note this, that Jesus wasn't just giving us some little phrases that if we simply utter them, then those words somehow like are a magical ritual to blessedness. I mean, there's many cults, many groups, many sects that believe that if we just repeat a bunch of words over and over, it doesn't matter what the heart says, just whatever you say, that's what brings salvation or brings healing or brings forgiveness. But Jesus said in the parallel passage of this account before, you know, as he's giving the model prayer, he said in Matthew 6, 7, he says, when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathens do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. And it's interesting because the model prayer that's given in Matthew 6, it varies in wording. So that proves that there's an unconcern for exact repetition, for exact replication over and over. And see, Jesus is showing us something here, I believe. That God is not looking primarily at our words, but rather he's looking at our hearts. He's looking at our motivation when we pray. Because see, in Matthew 6, 8, it states, Jesus said this. He says, he knows the things you have need of before you ask him. So it's not about what you're saying. It's about where is this coming from? What do you desire in the Lord? And see, as we look at this model prayer, the point is to submit and align our hearts with God's will, with God's kingdom, with God's way and not our way, not our kingdom, not our will. It's his will. And see, it's not about talking him into doing what we want him to do. It's about getting aligned with his way, not unlocking a magic genie, right? This isn't like Aladdin or something. We didn't stumble upon some little golden magical lamp with a genie in it. This is so that our wicked heart can get aligned with that beautiful, perfect heart of God that is going to guide us and lead us and direct us. But if we don't pray, man, what are we, we're going to know nothing about what the Lord has for us to do. We're going to be worried about our stuff. That's why it's important to have that right motivation, the right heart. And so it begins with this line. It says, our father in heaven, hollow be your name. And that expresses the proper reverence that we need to have towards God. And it's rooted in what God's word says about him, right? We know that God is 
God Almighty, right? He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And we know, according to Scripture, that we are now children of God through faith in Christ. And we can approach God as our Father. As Jesus said, you pray, our Father in heaven. That's an exciting statement that Jesus says, hey, my Father is your Father. It's our Father when you believe in me. That's a crazy thing. But that familiarity and relationship, that shouldn't cause us to be irreverent, right? And Galatians 4, 6 through 7, it says, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. And so, again, we, need, we know that we're adopted. We know that we're children, but we don't want to be like these, I don't know. There's those children sometimes. <laughs> they don't know how awesome their parents are. <laughs> that sounds very silly, but you know what I mean? Like they're almost ashamed of who their father is, or they just disregard how lucky they are to have that be their father. In this case, sometimes we might get in a spot where we think, well, I'm God's kid. I can ask for anything I want. We get spoiled maybe. And we say, you know, our way, we don't. no, the idea is, man, God is awesome and holy and we're blessed to be his sons, but he's still so much higher and greater than anything we can imagine. We should always be reverent towards our heavenly father. And so as this goes on, it says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And see, this expresses proper submission to God's plans. And so to me, this speaks of prioritizing and submitting to God's plans for us within his will while keeping a kingdom mindset. You see, Jesus taught his disciples as they went out. He told them in Luke 9, he told them in Luke 10, they needed to proclaim that the kingdom of God was at hand, that the kingdom of God was near. And the reason for that was it created urgency and it created the reality of, man, what else is important right now? The kingdom is the most important. It's finally here. It's happening. It's come upon us, right? And so we need to remember the nearness of God's kingdom in our prayer life because I'll tell you what it does. It gives us this great perspective where it helps to immediately recalibrate our hearts from the temporal to the eternal. And see, when we realize that, man, your kingdom is near, Father. Your kingdom is the thing that is supreme to everything I'm living in, and it's close. Whether by rapture or by rupture, however I go to meet the Lord, man, the kingdom's so close. And man, this makes things urgent. Like this makes the kingdom more urgent than anything in my own life. And so when I pray that, it reminds me of, man, all these temporal things that I maybe thought I was going to go take to the Lord in prayer. Maybe I need to seek first his kingdom. Seek his stuff over everything else. Because at the end of the day, when I remember that his will is the best thing for my life, better than everything and anything that this world can offer or that anything that I could create in my own intellect or in my own desires. When I remember that his will is the best thing, and I don't really need to ask for anything else, right? I pray for his kingdom to come in my life. That's gonna take care of everything else. Matthew 6, 33 says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you. So he'll take care of you. Speaking of that, look at what it says in verse three when it says, give us day by day our daily bread. This expresses the desire for like, man, I'm, I just need sustenance, Lord. This is like the proper dependence that we should have upon God and it expresses two big things, right? It expresses both faith and humility because we're recognizing our own inability to be self-sustainable, 
but also that we're trusting in God for our needs. So we're being humble. We're being lowly in that, but we're also showing to God, okay, we're needy, but we trust you to provide for us. And see, Philippians 4.19, it says, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And see, Jesus promised in Matthew 6 and Luke 12 that we are more valuable to God than the birds of the air or the lilies of the field. And he still, he feeds and clothes those, those things, right? The lilies of the field, he said, they look better than Solomon in all his splendor. The birds of the air, they don't worry about what they're going to get their food from. And see, this is so important. There's no need to worry as we commit to walking in the will of God for our life. And see, when we pray things like, Lord, you give us daily bread. It takes this weight off to say, well, if God is real and true, he's going to prove himself by giving the basic things that we need. Again, I'm not talking about confusing like greeds with needs, okay? We're not praying about things that we don't actually need. We're praying for his kingdom. But if I'm going to serve the kingdom, Lord, I'm going to need some basic provisions so that I can live. I always think about Elijah who lived by the stream when God told him, hey, get lost. Now that you, I think it was 1 Kings 17, where he says, okay, you have to go now because you've told Ahab that there's going to be a drought. I'm going to provide for you though. When you go live by a river, you know, you're going to get fed by, by ravens. And then I'm going to send you to a widow who's going to feed you. And then, man, then you'll be ready to do great things like call fire down from heaven. And see all those, those times where he prayed for God's basic provision, it built his faith. It didn't make him perfect because a couple chapters later, Elijah's running around like thinking he should, he wants to die because, you know, he, it turns out he's hungry and needs a nap, right? We read that in 1 Kings 19, I believe it is. But the idea is, man, we want to make sure every day we're coming in prayer to the Lord and saying, give us what we need, Lord. I don't need anything more than what the Lord thinks I need. Amen. And it's a blessed thing to trust in him. And then it goes on, it says, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And this expresses our neediness for deliverance from the wages of sin. And see, just as we need to eat every day, we need to be forgiven every day. Because I don't know about you, but for me, I'm constantly falling short. I don't like it, but it's the reality of living in this, in this tent, right? The reality is I have this sin nature, this flesh that I have to fight against by yielding to the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ who resides in me. Tells us that, I believe it's 1 Corinthians 3.16, I believe, that tells us that we are the temple of God, right? Because the Holy Spirit dwells in us. Well, we receive that Holy Spirit when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, when we realize that we have have sinned. If you've ever lied, if you've ever uh, cheated on something or someone, if you've ever stolen anything, if you ever thought terrible things about someone, you've sinned. You fall short of the glory of God. And therefore, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life to Christ Jesus who gave himself for us and died in our place. And because of his death upon the cross, when we confessed our mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Romans 10, 9 through 10 tells us that. And see, Jesus says, when you accept him, you're made a child of God. That's why we can call God our father. John 1, 12 says that as many as believe upon him, to them, they've been, they've been called children of God, to those that believe on the name of Jesus. And see, when that happens, it's like what Acts 2, 38 and 39 says. It says, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And see, as we yield to the Spirit, we walk in righteousness. But sometimes we don't yield to the Spirit, even as believers, right? 
and we fall short. And so every day we have to say, Lord, forgive us for what we've done. But you might say, well, okay, we just have to say it, right? Well, it says here what we're also supposed to pray. And remember, Jesus is giving a model prayer. There was no sin that Jesus needed to be forgiven for. He's saying, this is what you should pray, James. This is what you should pray, friend out there on the internet. You should pray, forgive us our sins as we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. That's huge. Matthew 6.14 tells us, um, what does is, what is Matthew 6.14 say? Let's think about this for a second. It says, if you forgive if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you your trespasses. Thank you. Pulled it from the memory banks way back there. It's getting harder, turning older every year, right? Okay, but it's back there. We need to forgive others their sins. And as we do that, we're forgiven ours. But here's the deal. It's not like that brings us salvation. The reality is when we've been forgiven much, we need to be forgiving much. And see, it tells us in Colossians 3, 13 through 14, it says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, you also must do. That's the reality. We need to be forgiving others. And see, when we forgive others, I think it reminds us of how forgiven we are. It's a, it's a blessed thing to forgive others. The things that they've done, they've said, they, they've held against us, whatever these things are. We want to forgive them because, man, we've been forgiven of things that were gnarly. The Lord said, man, I'm completely righteous, but I'm going to die in your place. And now you're going to get my righteousness. That's nuts. Like he was bruised for our iniquities and, and wounded for our transgressions, right? Isaiah 53, 5 talks about it. Like, that's insane. And so we respond to that sacrifice upon the cross of Jesus dying in our place. We love that forgiveness that we receive. Now we need to take that forgiveness and we need to give it out. We need to go take that and give it out as much as, as we can. And man, it's so great when we do that. It's freeing in so many ways, but also we're living like Jesus. We're living as lights of the world, so to speak. And so as it goes on, it, last thing here, it says, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And see, this just admits, hey, the propensity to sin. This, this shows that, man, we have a need for God's protective intercession in our lives. And let me be clear. This is not something where we think like, okay, Lord, keep me from temptation, but I'm still going to go visit that website. Lord, keep me from temptation, but I'm still going to go see that person. Lord, keep me from temptation, but I'm still going to go to that bar, that club. Lord, keep me from temptation, but I'm still going to watch and listen to all these same things that I know do wickedness to me. So here's the deal. What I'm trying to get to is I remember very much as a new believer, especially thinking, Lord, if I pray this prayer, Lord, you know, keep me from temptation, right? Don't leave me in a temptation. And then I would go to the same dumb places and dumb things I shouldn't have been at as a new, as a, as a new creation. And I'm like, oh, God, you didn't keep me from temptation. What's wrong with you? <laughs> That's terrible. That's hypocritical. The reality is we're told in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it says, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you will be able to bear it. And see, what we need to remember is that we're going to be tempted by our own flesh. James 1.14, I believe it is. It says that each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and is enticed by his own flesh. 
So the idea is like, man, I keep going after these things. I get mad at God for it. Like, oh, I can't believe you led me into temptation. Man, I love how James 4, 7 puts it. It says, therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. But when we go knocking on the devil's door again over and over and trying to find that proverbial fence that we want to sit upon as a new creation, man, we're going to create all kinds of issues for ourselves. So the best thing is just to submit to God's will, obey his word, walk in his ways, we'll be blessed, and he will be glorified. Amen? And so... That's the prayer, the model prayer. And then I love it because Jesus gives us a couple parables to express the Lord's heart towards us in prayer. Look at verse five through eight. It says, and Jesus said to them, which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has come to me on his journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, do not trouble me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to you. I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. So this first of these two parables that we're going to see here is to encourage persistence in our prayer life. And see, in this parable, we have a man who needs bread for his friend that's arriving from a journey. And so he goes over to his neighbor's house to get some bread. So you might say, what in the world is some dude showing up at someone's house at midnight and needing bread, right? You're like, dude, don't eat carbs after 7 p.m. if you want to stay fit and slim, right? But first of all, it's not what we're talking about. Look at, you have people in that time journeying by foot and in a very hot region of the world. So if someone wanted to travel a long way, they would leave at evening after the sun had set, assuming it's not a Sabbath, of course, and that sun would set and then they would take off and they'd start walking. So if it's a five or six hour walk, you're going to be showing up around midnight. So you show up at midnight, everyone in the neighborhood is all asleep. The marketplace is closed, right? And here's this guy at your door and you go, oh man, you just showed up on a journey. I didn't know you were getting here today. I don't have anything here. The market's closed. Let me run over to my neighbor and ask him for some bread. So he goes over to his friend's house. He starts banging on the door. And this guy seems to like open up a window or something, maybe. I don't know. And he says, hey, get out of here, man. I'm not going to help you. It's midnight. Are you crazy? I'm not coming down to give you bread because my whole family is asleep and in bed here with me. And again, we lose the context culturally for most of us, unless we have real little children that sleep in our bed. We're like, why are all these people sleeping in one place? Usually in these homes, it was like one big room. Maybe you had a loft where you would cook or where you would you know, have a, a, maybe a different kind of area, but for the most part, it was like one big room. And you also even had your animals downstairs in a region that was like, like closed off in, in an area, but the animals are asleep and then the people are asleep and they're all huddled up together to stay warm. We're not talking about like, like, you know, central air and, and heat. Right. So everyone's asleep together. And once that door was shut in that culture, if a door was open to a house, hey, it was come on in. You can come in. It was being hospitable. The, the minute that door shut, it was like, no, we're not here for you. We're, we're doing our thing now. And so this guy comes knocking on the door at midnight and he's like, dude, I'm going to wake everyone up if, if, you, if I go get you this bread. Well, the guy that needs the bread is just pestering this guy. He's, he's knocking the door. It's like shameless, uh, shameless like persistence, right? He's just pestering this guy. And basically what Jesus says in the parable is, look at this guy is going to eventually give it to him, not because he's his friend so much, but because he was just so persistent. 
The idea is like, man, I just want to get rid of you here. Take whatever you need, man. You're, you're disturbing my family. Uh, get out of here. Right. And so it's a funny thing because the parable is encouraging us to be persistent, knowing that God, unlike evil man, he wants us to bring our needs to him, no matter the time, no matter the, the situation. He wants us to bring and he's willing to provide. God is not reluctant to give according to his will. And see, our persistent, steadfast prayer, it reveals, again, his will to our hearts. And we know what to need. And I'm sorry, we know what to ask for. And he knows what we need. So he wants us to come constantly praying. I believe it's 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 or 17. It says to pray without ceasing, right? Constantly praying. And the Lord will answer us. And see, verses 9 through 13, Jesus gives another parable, a second parable that further expresses the faithfulness of God to give good gifts to those who ask within his will. Look what it says. It says, verse 9, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and to him who knocks, it'll be open. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And see, this is just such an awesome parable because what, what it's doing, it's reminding us of God's goodness. It's reminding us of God's willingness to give us what we need. And in verse 9 and 10, we're encouraged, we're commanded to continually ask, to continually seek, to continually knock. And this will lead us to receiving what we need according to his will. And see, as we earnestly and sincerely and desperately continue to pray, we develop hearts that eventually seek God's provision, which is good provision, and it aligns with his will. And see, again, I said it earlier, like we're not going to come asking for greeds. We're going to ask for needs. See, our fleshly wants, our fleshly desires, those things fade away as we pray in the spirit, right? We're told in Romans 8, 26, the spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings, which cannot be uttered when our weakness is there. The spirit guides us into what to pray for. In James 4, 3, it told us you ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasure. In other words, you come with come to the Lord in your flesh and you're praying for like the Ferrari convertible and, and the mansion up on the hill or something. You're like, oh God, I just don't know why you're not answering my prayers. It's like, well, I never called you to pray for those things. I'm calling you to, to come and pray for opportunity to share the gospel. I'm calling you to go and, 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 and pray and ask for your blind spots on where you need to, to get fellowship and get in the word. You, you and I, brother and sister in the Lord, we need to come to the Lord. And as we pray, we need to lay down to the Lord the fact that, man, Lord, just give me whatever good works you have for me to walk in. Ephesians 2.10, right? Lord, put those in front of me and empower me to do them. Because I'll tell you, that's where the blessing lies. Whatever you think you were created for, if it's anything other than glorifying God with that will that he has for your life, it's just not, A, it's, I, I'll be honest with you, if it happens, it's a work of yourself. And B, man, anything besides God's perfect will is just a letdown. 
It's never going to bless us. It's never going to glorify God. It's never going to edify the body. It's never going to testify to the world the way that his will and his perfect plan for our life will. And so he says, look, at you guys being evil, you give gifts to your kids that come and ask. How much more will God the Father give good gifts? And I love it because what's the best gift that Jesus says that he's ready to give? He's ready to give us the Holy Spirit. And see, that's so awesome because I already explained earlier, and I don't want to repeat myself too much on this, but it's important to know when you believe upon Jesus Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit. And it's such a beautiful thing because when we receive the Holy Spirit, it says in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, that that's what we're sanctified by the Spirit. In Acts 1, 8, we're empowered by the Spirit to do ministry, to do Christian living. And then in Romans 8, 16, we're told that the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. So in other words, it's assuring us of our salvation. And I'm not talking about like perseverance of the saints, like Calvinism kind of assurance. I'm talking about like, you know, when you're walking in the spirit and you're reading the word and you're praying, Lord, you know, you're saved. Man, you get away from prayer. You get away from walking in the spirit. You get away from the word. Man, you get in trouble. (laughs) Doubt starts to enter. You start to drift away from the Lord. You're not praying so much. You're not in the word. You're not in fellowship. Man, destruction is over here. The enemy wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And the first thing he'll try to take from you is your faith in the word of God. He'll try to take your prayer life with distractions, with self-willed desires. Come lay those at the feet of Jesus. And man, ask for the Holy Spirit. The Lord is good to give it. Again, Peter told the people in Acts 2, 38 and 39, he said, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and all who are far off, as many as the Lord would call. You and I are far off, both in time and in distance. We don't live, I think most people I'm talking to, we don't live near Israel and it's been 2,020 years probably approximately, 2,000 years since this whole thing happened where the Holy Spirit is available for us to ask for it and the Lord will give it to us. And so we pray, Lord, give us your spirit, right? And Jesus says, man, the Father is so good to do this. And so you say, well, why do I need the spirit just to live uprightly and, you know, be righteous and stuff? Well, again, we're sanctified by the spirit and then it bears witness to us that we're his children. But again, the big thing is Acts 1.8, right? But when we receive the Holy Spirit, we'll be witnesses to God in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to all the ends of the earth. We receive power, according to Acts 1.8, that dunamis power that gives us the ability to serve the Lord. And we get an example of Jesus, just the fact that it's the Spirit of God living in us. It should make us excited because we're going to see that Jesus is the greatest power <laughs> in not just the world, but in in all of everything. I don't even know how to put it in such terms. He's greater than our spiritual enemy, Satan. He's more powerful than any temptation or desire that you may have. And when we submit to him, when we believe upon him, we receive that spirit and we're able to walk out in his power. Amen. Look what it says in verses 14 through 16. We get an account of what Jesus is doing with great power. It says, and Jesus was casting out a demon and it was mute. So it was when the demon had gone out that the mute spoke and the multitude marveled. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Others testing him sought sought from him a sign from heaven. So here's Jesus. He's in the midst of a multitude. And there's a demon-possessed man who has been made mute by this demon. 
We're actually also told in Matthew 12, 22, that this demon made him blind. So this man was blind and mute because of the power of Satan. He could not hear or see. I think there's a deep spiritual uh, application in there that Satan will keep you deaf and blind to the things of God, right? He'll, he'll just destroy your ability to see and hear the good news of Jesus Christ. But see, Jesus is stronger than that. Here's Jesus. He shows up. And man, the Jewish rabbis, we've talked about this in weeks past. They all thought that you had to know the name of an evil spirit or an unclean spirit to cast it out. That's church tradition. And that's church history. It tells us that Jewish writers have told us this. It's not necessarily uh, direct out of the Bible, but this is a belief, right? And if that's the case, how hard must this have seemed? Not only is this dude mute, so you can't get the name of the demon. This thing is blind to this man. This is an extra strong demon, it seems like. But yet here comes Jesus into this scene where people probably thought, man, there's just no hope for this guy. This guy's completely incapacitated by this. And yet Jesus walks in and I just love it. Just in like a sentence, he cast the demon out. I don't know how, I don't know what it looked like. I don't know what words were said, but as he cast this demon out, there's a mixed response in the crowd. Mark 3.22 mentions that there were scribes, while Matthew 12.24 mentions that there were Pharisees that were scoffing and accusing Jesus of working through demonic power. They say, oh, you, you use Beelzebub to cast out demons. That's a Jewish title for Satan. It's basically that he's the ruler of the demons. And see, even others, it told us in verse 16, they were asking for additional signs from heaven as a test to authenticate the ministry of Jesus. It wasn't good enough that Jesus was doing these radical things in front of them. They're like, no, we want more before we believe. And it's funny, Hebrews 11, 1, it says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. There is substance and evidence, but it's not always a tangible thing. But man, these people had Jesus right in front of them. We talked about it last week, how there's going to be a greater judgment for those that are ignoring the work of God in their lives and around their lives when they stand before the Lord. These people are saying, we want more signs. And see how many times we find ourselves in the same position. We're like, okay, that's, that's great, but I want more. Jesus, you got to show me more things. And Jesus, here's the reality. I'm showing you I'm powerful. Look what he says in verse 17. He says, but knowing their hearts, I'm sorry, but knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. A house divided against a house falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so Jesus immediately answers their accusations with like pointing by just pointing out their faulty logic and also saying, man, you guys are actually holding a double standard. See, first of all, he says, this is absolutely absurd. You think that I'm using Satan, Beelzebub, the ruler of demons, to cast out demons. That's, that doesn't give Satan enough credit. Look, Satan's not the antithesis of God. He's a created being. He's not like equally as strong as God, just mean and bad and evil. But the reality is he's super smart. <laughs> Satan knows how to mess. And in this case, to think that Satan is dumb enough to destroy his own kingdom, Jesus is like, come on, man. That makes no sense. Even if Satan were dumb, no one's dumb enough to just destroy their own stuff, right? Like purposely like that. So he says, look, why would the ruler of demons use me to defeat demons? 
that that makes no sense. So he 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 just absolutely says that's that's silly that accusation. But secondly, I love how he turns the tables on. Him. This is where we see they're just rejecting Jesus and their unbelief in the fact that they don't want him to be their Messiah because he doesn't fit their messianic box, right? He's not there to overthrow Rome and to give them societal um, you know prominence. Jesus called them sinners and called them to repent, and that's a hard message for any of us to receive. But praise the Lord when we're willing in our lowliness to receive that message. But these guys weren't ready for that. So he calls them out and says, look it, you're accusing me of using Beelzebub to cast out demons. Well, what do you say about your own sons, about your own people here, part of your clique, when they cast out demons? You chalk it up to the name of God. Why aren't you doing that for me? And see, Jesus knew their thoughts. It said that in verse 17. He knew their thoughts that they hated him. They were rejecting him. He says, this is just another opportunity for them to publicly try to convince people not to believe upon me. And so he calls out their logic and says, man, this makes no sense. But again, jealousy and unbelief, man, they'll blind us. Do you remember Pharaoh in, in Exodus 8? When all of the plagues are happening, he had his magicians recreate them so that like, like he could write it off as like, well, even man can do these things. It's not God. But at one point, I believe it's in Exodus 8, 19, the magicians come and they're like, dude, we're, we're unable to recreate this plague. They said, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh... His heart grew hard and he did not heed them just as the Lord had said. So even though God manifested his power right before the eyes of Pharaoh, Pharaoh hardened his heart and wouldn't believe in Exodus 8. And it's the same thing here. These men saw Jesus work and they refused him. But look at what Jesus says. He teaches a little short parable here in verse 21 through 23. It says, when a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides its spoils. But he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. So these three verses come together to create this little parable. And what this parable is saying is that there's a strong man, right? And we know that he's fully armed. He guards his own palace. His goods are in peace. I believe clearly in this story, given the whole parable, that that first strong man is actually not Jesus, but Satan. Satan is the one, he's the prince, the power of the air, and he's keeping mankind in his grips using temptation to sin and his influence to sin with evil powers and principalities. Here's this strong man that is Satan, right? And he's got the whole world under his sway. First John 5.19 says, we know that we are of God. And the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. So think about it. His power is, is, is prominently seen in this section with like physically speaking in this mute and blind man, an evil spirit of Satan has taken away his ability to see and hear. So physically it's proven that this, that, that there's a strong man in the room, but Jesus says in this parable, well, he thinks that he has everything in his grips. He's got peace, so to speak. But then a stronger one shows up, right? Jesus says, a stronger than he comes upon him, overcomes him, and he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. I love that. Jesus is the stronger man. We just saw it with the man that had this demon that the Jewish rabbis probably thought, this guy's too far gone. The enemy, Satan, has bound this man. He's too strong. Jesus walks in, and we don't even get told how we get it because it was so pedestrian to Jesus to just cast out demons. <laughs> Regular commonplace, I guess. And 
as he cast out this demon, everyone's seeing, man, Jesus has overcome Satan. And let me tell you, Jesus overcame Satan in the wilderness in Luke 4. Jesus overcame Satan, casting out demons, not just here, but in previous chapters as well. And Jesus overcame Satan eventually at the cross, right? I love it. The idea that he took the armor of the, of the strong one away. It reminds me of Colossians 2.15, which says, Having disarmed principalities and powers, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So in the cross, Jesus triumphed over the enemy. He proved that he is the stronger one. And see, I love that because Jesus, through his death upon the cross, he delivered mankind from the wages of sin and in turn brought peace with God. Man and God were brought to peace as man put his faith in Jesus Christ. And see, his resurrection proved him to be triumphant. 1 John 3, 8, it says, He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. And see, Jesus showed up, and he's destroying the work of Satan. He's breaking apart the spoils, dividing the spoils, so to speak. He's saying, this man is no longer going to be held in the grips of Satan. I'm stronger. I'm going to strip him of his power, and I'm going to let this man go free. And see, this is just such an awesome, beautiful thing. And what Jesus says in verse 23 is the reality is there's no neutral position in Jesus now. You've seen Jesus work. You've seen the evidence and proof of him. And the reality is if you're not with me, you're against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. In other words, you have to choose now. He's telling the whole multitude, you've seen me cast this demon out. If you know what you just saw, you're going to have to make a decision now. Are you for me or are you against me? And if you're with me, we're going to gather together. This is where that power comes in. We can't do it on our own. But as we trust in Jesus, we pray and seek the Lord and ask for him to fill us with the spirit and to guide us and lead us and equip us for the calling that he's placed upon our life. We can go out and gather with Jesus, take people back, pull them back, pluck them out of the fires of hell, pull them out of that grip of Satan and see, otherwise we scatter. We run away from the calling of God, even though it was so apparent and manifested right before us. And so the people in the room, they have a decision to make. And see, for us, we need to realize that it's the greatest decision. It's really, to be honest, it's, it's the only, only decision that decides your salvation, that decides your eternity. You either choose to accept Jesus's word and his testimony and believe that he is God the Son, who eventually would go to the cross and die in our place and rise again on the third day, or you don't believe it. Whatever your reason is for not believing it, when you reject Jesus Christ, that's the unpardonable sin. And I think it's so interesting that Jesus in Matthew's account, in Matthew 12, 31 to 32, when he's done telling this parable, he teaches them about the unpardonable sin, which is the rejection of the testimony of the spirit that Jesus is Lord. And so you've got to choose wisely. That's the unforgivable sin. Anything else you've done, the Lord is ready to forgive. He's able to forgive. But if you come to your final day, you come and appear before the throne of God and you didn't do anything that you were supposed to do with Jesus, you didn't accept him, you will have to depart from him. And he'll say, depart from me, you curse, and into eternal fire, which was prepared for the devil and his angels. And you say, man, that's so terrible, right? That he, that he sends people to hell. Here's the reality. Everyone deserved hell. Isn't he good because he allows some to go to heaven? <laughs> and you say, well, who, who gets to go? I want to be in. Great. Confess at your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised from the dead. You'll be saved. You say, well, it's too easy, or I don't believe it. That's what the scriptures say. 
There's a real hell. There's a real heaven. There, everyone is going to live for eternity. It's just a matter of where. But you want to live with God, the Father. You do not want to be cast away from him. And so as we go on, 24 through 26, we're almost done here. It says, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest. And finding none, he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the man is worse than the first. So this is kind of like, a, I'll be honest, kind of a cryptic, kind of like vague sounding few verses when we first read them, right? We go, okay, Jesus, you just cast a demon out. You're just telling everyone if you're with, you're either with me or against me, you're either gathering with me or scattering. Now you're talking about demons going around and, and this unclean spirit looking for a place to rest. And if he doesn't find anywhere, he comes back to the house that's clean and brings seven of his friends. Let me tell you what I believe this says. And I believe it's biblical and you do your homework and you tell me what you think it says, but I think this is the plainest interpretation of it. The reality is when Jesus cast that demon out of that man, that man seemed to be healed on some level. The people in the room said, man, he's completely healed now. Jesus would say, well, no, he's physically healed. And yes, I cast a demon out of him. But the reality is if this man stands around here thinking that he's good now, just because he doesn't have a demon in him, he's going to think he's so nice and like, swept and cleaned up that's that demon is going to find come back with seven of his buddies seven being the number of completion throughout the bible i believe it just basically means this this guy thinks he's good because jesus one time healed him of something but the reality is unless you're filled with jesus christ unless you accept and believe upon him you're empty and susceptible to way worse things than just one demon complete destruction can come and see, that's why Jesus says, look it, you're going to be worse off in the end than you were at the beginning. You thought you were good because you got like you got delivered from one demon. And you're going to walk around thinking, man, that's it. I'm forever healed. No, there's more to this. You have to accept Jesus Christ. You have to accept his word, his testimony. Don't just walk around thinking you're good. You got to be filled with the spirit. Again, when you believe upon Jesus, you're filled with the spirit. The Christian brother and sister cannot be possessed by a demon. That's a fact. We can be oppressed. We can be attacked. But then again, guess who's stronger than the strong man? Jesus. <laughs> so greater is him who is in us than he who is in the world. Amen. That's a Bible verse from scripture. Like we know that Jesus is stronger than he who is in the world. And so as we look at this section, really, I believe what it just comes down to is that we can't just rely on that one-time experience where we encounter Jesus. We have to accept him, be filled by him, and walk in his power. And see, when we read the word daily, when we pray daily, we grow and become more like him. We're dependent upon him. And we actually are able to do the things that he calls us to. Amen. Look at the last thing we're going to look at. Verse 27 to 28. It's kind of in the same vein. This is where we conclude. It says, and it happened as he spoke these things, that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast which nursed you. But he said, more than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Okay, this woman's in the crowd of the multitude. Jesus teaches after casting out the demon. He's teaching about how we need to be filled with, with, with him, right? We need to accept him and gather with him. 
and make sure that we don't just leave ourselves susceptible to more demons. And this woman cries out this kind of odd thing, right? Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast which nursed you. You're like, what? <laughs> That's a weird thing to shout out in a crowd, right? But here's the deal. This is what it's expressing. It's basically the woman's way of worshiping Jesus is to say, man, your mother must be so blessed to have birthed the Messiah. It's a proclamation of faith towards Jesus. But here's what's interesting, okay? Jesus doesn't talk down Mary by any means in this section. He doesn't like demote Mary in this woman's eyes, but he definitely doesn't elevate Mary to say, oh, you're right. Mary is like the most blessed person ever or something, right? So there's not this elevation of Mary. What he does elevate, look what he says. There's a relationship here. He says there's something more important. He says more than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. See, in that culture, the importance of family and association by family line, right? By bloodline. That was the best thing you could have. If you were born to a prominent person or born to a king, all these things were so, like, you looked at the bloodline, right? Luke started with a, with a, a genealogy. Matthew starts with a genealogy. Uh, John, in its own way, starts with a genealogy, just saying that Jesus was eternal, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? But... The idea is they kept track of your bloodline. And man, this lady's saying, man, this your mother must be so blessed because she's so directly, closely connected to you. That, that honorable, prestigious relationship of mother and son and that you're the Messiah. But Jesus says, hey, I have a more blessed relationship. More blessed than that one is those who keep my word. Those who hear my word and keep it are more blessed than my mother. <laughs> That's a radical statement. And I'll tell you what's so awesome about it is the fact that it's pretty simple. It doesn't make it easy, but it's simple. If you accept the word of Jesus, if you believe in the word of Jesus and you actually walk it out, man, you are as close to him and more blessed than even his own mother. That's a huge statement, right? Offensive to some probably. But the reality is in Luke 8, 21, when someone came and said, hey, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside. He said, my mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. And see, the reason he says this to this woman in the multitude is reality is they all just witnessed him do something great with his power. But not all would accept him. And he says, man, those that don't accept this, man, they're cursed. But those that accept my testimony, believe in my word, put their trust in me. They're going to be the most blessed that you can possibly imagine. And see, that's the call today. That is the call tonight to whoever's listening live or later on. What are we doing with Jesus? Are we believing upon his word and his testimony? Are we accepting it and walking? Because if we do, we'll be blessed beyond measure. But if we reject it, we'll be condemned. And see, I beg you, I believe the time is getting short. I believe that Jesus is very close. <laughs> I mean, I, I, you just see it everywhere. We live in a very, very perverse world right now. We live in a world that is just chaotic right now. The, the, new, the new normal, right? The new normal is uncomfortable for everybody because this is not right what's happening. Everything is weird right now. I believe that everything is changing. And I believe that it's perfectly in time with the fact that, man, I believe the Lord is coming to take his church home. I don't know when. No one knows, by the way. Don't listen to anyone who tells you they know when. <laughs> But I do know this, that at some point that's going to happen. I believe we're very close. If we're not close now. Jeez, what's it going to look like when it is close, right? But no matter what, we need to put our faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. Today is the day of salvation. 
Trust in Jesus Christ. He has proven that he is powerful. If you haven't seen it in your life, consider the life of those like me who were lost, but now we see. And life has become what it was always supposed to be. Simply trusting in the Lord. And I'll tell you this morning, just praying for the Lord to give me opportunities to be a light in the community. Those weird things. I would have never prayed such a thing back in the day. I could care less about other people. That's just the reality of it. Unless the people were like opportunities for me. They were either opportunities or obstacles to what I needed to get to, right? But now, trusting in the Lord, saying, Lord, I know I was created to further your gospel, your kingdom. <laughs> Lord, give me opportunities to do that. And it's so cool because the Lord gave me those opportunities today. In spite of myself, in spite of my own unbelief or disbelief at times, the Lord answers and gives me opportunities. And I go, man, what a blessing. Continue to give me those day by day because the time is short. Amen. Let's go out. Let's seek the Lord's provision for our lives. Let's seek his plan for our life. Let's walk in those good works that he has laid before us, but it starts by believing his word of who he is. Okay, let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we come before you now, Lord, and we just thank you for your goodness. Lord. We thank you for your mercy, for your grace, and for your love, and for the fact that you were willing to give us good gifts, Lord, to give us your Holy Spirit that we may go out and serve you, Lord. But I pray that we would be prayed up, that we would be um, aligned with your will for whatever you have for us. And just right now as we're praying, if there's anyone online or listening during the week that has not accepted you, Lord Jesus, if you're out there and you haven't accepted the Lord, this is your opportunity to trust in him. It begins with a simple prayer. It doesn't end there, but it begins with this prayer. And it's a surrendering of yourself to him. You say, if you want to pray this prayer, you just repeat after me. You'd say, Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all of my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, thank you for being online with us live tonight. We pray that you would just be blessed wherever you may be listening during the week on Spotify or on the website or wherever you may be listening. We're praying for you. Please let us know if there's anything we can uh, be of assistance in. If you have questions about the message, if you have questions about salvation or Christianity or the Bible itself, reach out, go to ccmckinney.org. All of our contact information's on there. You can also listen to past studies there, okay? That said, we'll be back online, uh, Lord willing, Saturday night at 8 p.m. Central. And tomorrow morning, for anyone in the area, we are gonna be live in person, more of a question and answer time through the same study, but we're gonna partake of communion. So come on now, okay? Uh, love you guys. Have a blessed night.